This is week number 20 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week, uh, we, two weeks ago, or whenever we finished it, um, we finished chapter 5, began to try and get into chapter 6, but then we were introduced to uh, a character in the, in the writings of Daniel that is Darius the Mede. He shows up in chapter 5 and verse 31. So we spent last week talking about who is Darius the Mede, because this is a, a pivotal um, place in the scripture, not so much because there's a man named Darius the Mede, but because of what um, liberal theologians try and do with Darius the Mede. There's an argument that goes that um, there was no person named Darius the Mede, that Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon and was the ruler and the king of Babylon, and that the writer of Daniel was just confused about its historical facts. So the things that are written in the book of Daniel are not actually factual. Well, that argument goes to support the argument that the book of Daniel was not built in, written in the 6th century B.C., but it was written in the 2nd century B.C. And the reason that it has historical errors in it is because the people in the 2nd century B.C., specifically the writer of Daniel, saw only dimly what had happened four centuries before, and so they easily got the facts mixed up. Well, if that be true, if the book was written in the 2nd century B.C., then the prophecies of Daniel are really not prophecies, but they're recounting historical facts because many of the things that are written in Daniel had already taken place by the 2nd century B.C., so the prophecies fall. Well, if the prophecies fall in Daniel, then so do the miracles of Daniel. And so this is a critical argument because you lose the prophecies, you lose the miracles, and then, even more complexly, Christ referenced the writings of Daniel in Matthew chapter 24. And so that falls because the book is false and it has errors in it. And so this is a pivotal argument. This is where the theo- liberal theologians try and tear down the canon of Scripture, specifically the book of Daniel. And so we had to talk about that and the arguments that are put there. And what we came away with is there are at least two good, strong arguments that come out of the historical documents to support the fact that Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. And there is no confusion or error in talking about Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. The first of those arguments we talked about last week is that Darius is really not a name of someone, but rather it's a title. Much as Caesar was a title for the Romans, so Darius may be a title for the Medo-Persians, and so Darius the Mede is just another name for Cyrus the Persian. And there's arguments that could be made there. We reviewed the facts and and some of the details there just briefly. But nevertheless, that's a reasonable argument that Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are indeed the same person. Then there's a second argument that goes that Darius the Mede is an individual person, separate and apart from Cyrus, and that he was one of the generals who actually captured Babylon. Babylon was captured on the 12th day of October in 539 B.C. Cyrus did not show up on the scene until the 30th day. So there were 18 days 
where the city was under siege, that power control had been exchanged before Cyrus got there. And when Cyrus got there, he then appointed one of these generals to be king of Babylon. Not king of the Medo-Persian Empire like Cyrus was, but king of the Babylonian part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this Darius the Mede would then be still a king, certainly, appointed by Cyrus, but subservient to Cyrus um, the Persian. And that's a reasonable argument. It can be supported in historical documents, and it's uh, a possibility. Personally, it's the one that I tend to hold to, as opposed to Darius being a title of someone, but that's okay. Um, we can, can't know everything perfectly, and, but these are reasonable arguments. As a matter of fact, they're better arguments from the historical documents than those that the liberals make because they speak mainly, mainly from silence, not from actual documents or facts. And so with that, then we reject the thought that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. and that there was confusion in the mind of the writer and that he got the historical facts wrong. We stand with Daniel saying that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century by the person named Daniel who was taken when Jerusalem was captured and that he wrote factually because he knew the history better than anybody else who's talking about it today or has ever talked about it because he lived through it. And so he had his reasons for what he was writing, and on the other side, we'll know exactly which argument is right and exactly who these people were, but there are no errors in the book of Daniel. And so we reject those arguments of the liberals. So that's an important, um, detailed discussion that still arises out of the documents, is still debated today, still ongoing, still people trying to tear down the book of Daniel, uh, even in our day. And so thought it worthwhile for us to go through those arguments and to talk about it. Because you need to be able to speak. When people make arguments or, and they just make assumptions and they just make statements, you don't have to worry about that. But when they try and build factual, historical arguments that are incorrect and are full of errors and full of assumptions and, and pre, uh, pre, presuppositions then you have to speak to those. And you have to speak factually to those. And you have to be able to make an argument from the historical documents and the writings. And so that has been done. We've talked about that. And so we move forward. Uh, And I will speak as we go through this book as Darius the Mede being someone separate from Cyrus. But if you believe they're the same person, I'm okay with that. Okay? I mean, because you could make the same statements and, um, and, and speak to the book. But that's the way that I'll talk about it as we go through it here. Okay, so with that, we're down to the opening of chapter 6. Now, chapter 6 is one that you know well, or if you don't know it by chapter, this is the book, this is the chapter in which Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. Story that if you grew up in church, you've been taught from when, before you could speak, Right? And uh, we'll talk about that for just a minute here in a few minutes. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading the the first 11 verses of chapter 6 of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, there the scripture reads, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. 
and over the, them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began to trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it in it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed and entered his, his house, now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. So, we've, um, we've got the, the government being established under the new Medo-Persian rule. Now, you can just imagine, we talked about this briefly last week, what's going on in the mind of Daniel. Because to him, this would have been crystal clear as fulfillment of the prophecy that he had given all the way back in chapter 2 when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. You remember that dream? There was a large statue in that dream, and it had a head of gold. And Daniel said, well, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But then it had arms of silver, and Daniel didn't know who that was. And then a, um, a belly of bronze, and he didn't know who that was. And legs of iron, and he didn't know who, who that was. And feet of clay and iron, and he didn't know who that was. And then ultimately, a stone cut without hands that established the eternal kingdom. Daniel had no idea who those kingdoms were. He knew Nebuchadnezzar was the head, but God did not reveal to him who the others were. They were just kingdoms that would come after Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, that were less than the Babylonian kingdom, is what Daniel was told. But now here, at 80 years young or, or more, Daniel... You like that, right? Lois? Okay. Now you have two silver arms, the Medo and the Persian kingdom. And so Daniel got to witness this, and it would have been very clear to him that the Babylonian kingdom had been replaced 
by the Medo-Persian kingdom. And I think to his astonishment, it had been done without any war. It was basically done in silence. The only person that we know of by the scripture who got killed was Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, the acting king of Babylon. His father, Nabondinus, had been um, had fled out into the desert. He was captured there. And so he remained in exile from Babylon and died shortly thereafter, after his capture. And so now you've got both the acting king and the truly or, uh, coronated king of Babylon gone and replaced by Cyrus and in this passage by Darius. And so this would have been clear to Daniel. I mean, he would not have been surprised at all. And, um, and so he got to see this first kingdom fulfilled. So as we open up the, the first verse of chapter 6, Darius is appointing 120 satraps to be over the provinces of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, this is not the same Babylonian kingdom that we once talked about. This is in the area of Babylon. So, this is, to me, it sounds just like the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar had provincial uh, rulers over all his provinces so that when he uh, built the large image and called all the provincial leaders together to come and worship that image. You remember that in chapter 3 that ultimately led to the three friends of Daniel being thrown into the fiery furnace? Well, so this sounds like the same kind of government that Babylon had always been under, even under Nebuchadnezzar himself. Don't know that that extended all the way through to Belshazzar or not, but it sounds very similar. Now, so you have these provincial leaders. Um, some of the translations call them governors. Some call them satraps. So different titles. But really, these are people who are appointed over areas of the kingdom so that they can govern it or rule it or tax it or do whatever um, Darius wants them to do um, so that he can have an organized kingdom. Okay? Then over those three uh, 120 satraps, you have three uh, commissioners is what the New American Standard uses. I believe the ESV uses presidents, right? And so you've got these three higher officials that are appointed over these 120 satraps that are over the provinces. So I guess each one had about 40 provinces that they were responsible for. And Daniel is one of these guys. One of the three presidents are commissioners. Now, why is it that a conquering empire, the Medo-Persians, would come into and conquer Babylon and appoint Daniel to be one of the three highest guys underneath the king in the land? What, why did that happen? Well, God is in control. But why would a conquering king do that? Reputation. All right, possibly reputation. Daniel's reputation, um, you know, you remember when Nebuchadnezzar made his proclamation of chapter 4, he made it to the whole world and he spoke of this Daniel, right? Well, the Medo-Persian Empire already existed. It was Medes and Persians at that time, but it already existed when Nebuchadnezzar made that. So Daniel was wide, was known worldwide not just in 
Babylon, or you're not just to Nebuchadnezzar or the people who came after Nebuchadnezzar, but to the whole world. So it's possible that that reputation preceded him and that when they took the kingdom over, surprise probably if Daniel's still alive at 80 years young, okay, but still recognizing who he was. That's one possibility. What else do you think? And you saw that even when the Babylonians first captured Jerusalem, right? They did away with the king who was there, but put their own king there, who then rebelled against them, and ultimately they had enough. But nevertheless, they did the same thing. They put a vassal king in charge, and his responsibility was to collect taxes and send it to Babylon. So that's not uncommon. You're right, to take off just the head and leave everything else in place. So I ask a question then. Are the satraps that are over these 120 provinces, the same guys who ruled for the kingdom of Babylon when Babylon was in control, when the Babylonians were in control? Probably some. Probably some. some of them. Not the could be, right? Some of these guys could have been in these positions for a long time. They would certainly know about Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you know, Daniel, you remember just before they were conquered. Actually, the book of Daniel says, commentators don't agree with this, which always baffles me, that Daniel was actually appointed as third in command of the kingdom, right? I mean, that's what he was promised if he could interpret the inscription on the wall. And it actually says that he was given a robe and given the chain and appointed third commander of the Babylonian kingdom. And so... Having been such and having experience in ruling over these satraps, which he clearly did in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, then it made sense maybe to Darius to keep him in that position. Because he knew all these guys and he knew how to run the country. And he had done it efficiently for the previous king. So there there are reasonable explanations, but you remember that Belshazzar knew of Daniel But he didn't know Daniel. And so this is, again, like you said, God in control, God orchestrating the interpretation of the inscription by Daniel so that Daniel could be in the right place at the right time to be recognized by the conquering king and appointed to a very high position. I mean, underneath King Darius, there are only three guys, and Daniel's one of them. They rule the whole kingdom. And so Daniel, again, like he was the right-hand man to Nebuchadnezzar, is now the right-hand man to King Darius. So only by the orchestration of God could that have happened. And as we well understand the theme of Daniel, that God is sovereign over the realm of mankind and appoints over it whom he wants to, whom he wishes. And so he appointed at this point Daniel to be one of these leaders. God can do whatever he desires to. And we see that clearly all through the book of Daniel, God doing what he wants to do to get his message out, to get his um, proclamations out, to make people understand who the God of Daniel is. Over and over and over again, we've seen that happen. Okay, so you now have 120 satraps and you've got three commissioners over over these 120 satraps. And what happens? 
How does the story go? What happens next? Got the government established, right? It's all sound and good. And what happens? Daniel distinguishes himself, right? Like Daniel always distinguishes himself. And, and how would he have done that? How would Daniel have distinguished himself? Yeah, good decisions that would be recognized by everybody, right? It would not have been in private. He's a government ruler. And so his, his ruling would have been public. And so, as with Nebuchadnezzar, he was seen to be, you remember this, ten times better, not literally ten times better, just much better than all the other guys. So he's making better decisions than his counterparts. Probably his 40 satraps are running their kingdom better because of Daniel's good leadership. And so things are more organized and more functional and don't have uprisings, don't have problems because of the leadership and the skill of Daniel. And Daniel the scripture says, had an extraordinary spirit. Now, that word spirit is the same word that you remember the queen used, that Nebuchadnezzar used, that we recognize there is a spirit of the holy gods in you. It's the same word, spirit. really has no spiritual connotation here at all. It simply means the life within you or the breath within you. Um, you know the, um, the the mind that is within you, and so Daniel's mind, even at eighty years young, was sharper and crisper and made better decisions than all his counterparts. So he began to distinguish himself. Now, do do the do the people of the other provinces that Daniel's not over, and the other commissioners or presidents recognize? that Daniel is making better decisions than they are. Good. Well, that would have definitely been true, right? <laughs> and, and spoke very directly. He would have exposed things that would not have been right. And I want to talk about that here in a minute. So... I think everybody knows because the way the scripture reads here in verse 3 at the, at the end, he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now that is not a private discussion between the king and Daniel. How do I know that? Exactly. The other guys recognize it that Daniel is going to be promoted over them. Right? Because, I mean, there's only one place to go. If you're, you got the king and you got three presidents, there's only one place to go. You're not going to go over the king or become the king, so you're going to be over the other presidents. And you're going to be over the whole kingdom, and that's what it says, right? That Daniel would then be the ruler of the kingdom um, certainly under the auspices of the king, but nevertheless ruling the kingdom. He'd be running the government, just like he did under Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he ran the whole place and probably was the guy who replaced Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven periods of time. Probably Daniel, who was running the whole show at that time, because he was his right-hand man. So everybody recognizes this. This is not private. Daniel is exceptional, 
Uh, we don't know how long this lasted for. We don't know if it's the next year or if it's just a couple of months. We, no time frame given. But nevertheless, it's well known and recognized that Daniel is extraordinary and is going to be promoted. Okay, so the, the commissioners and the satraps begin to have this plot, right? Now, who do you think, I mean, we know who that would be the other two commissioners, right? Or the other two presidents, for sure. How about the satraps? Now, there's 120 of those guys. Do you think some of them would have abstained from this? Or is it everybody against Daniel? Yeah, I would think that some of those who were under Daniel kind of wanted him to be the ruler of everything. And so, you know, they, they, it's presented here. As a matter of fact, these guys even state later, and we'll talk about their lies, that everybody, everybody, O king, agrees to this, that you should write this edict. Well, maybe not so much. And I would think that there are some satraps who were elite under Daniel, maybe some of the others who previously had been under Daniel when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, who maybe favored Daniel. Go ahead. But just like any time that you have a righteous person in charge, the righteousness of that person will be convicting to the people that are underneath them. And sure. I, I've worked for many bosses who were very godly men or, or righteous men, and the people who were unrighteous and didn't like their sins being pointed out grumbled and complained sure. and did everything they could to tear down that person. So you're going to find people underneath Daniel who were unrighteous, maybe had their sin exposed, maybe were even fired or let go or put in different positions. But sure. In effect, that you would do everything they could to tear him down. Yeah, but that wouldn't be all of them, right? No. I mean, because like you would never attack your righteous boss, right? I mean, you may expose my weakness, but I wouldn't attack the guy for that. I'd respect him even more. So, But you're right. Some would uh, be offended by that and would... Attack him. So what, my point is this: It's not everybody in the kingdom against Daniel. I don't think it was written. They say that's true, but I don't think that's true at all. I think there's some people who would have supported Daniel. So, but certainly the majority would not have. Okay, so you've got all these guys, and you know I kind of like what verse four says, even though it's in opposition to Daniel. And they're going to look at every detail of his governing, of his government, of the way he runs things, of the decisions he makes, of the people underneath him. They're looking at all of that, and what do they find? Nothing, right? I mean, not a scrap. They don't find a single thing. I mean, the word says, um, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. None. Nothing underneath Daniel, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Now, what's remarkable about that? This is politics. It is politics. I mean, it is. This is a government, so it's politics. What else is remarkable about that statement? That they looked, and you know, if they could have found something, they would have found something. And they could find nothing. What is remarkable about that? I don't find it hard to believe that they would not be able to find anything of corruption because that makes sense. But to not find anything by negligence either. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the human is to forget things and to overlook things. And sure. 
And and so that's the point, right? Who is Daniel working for? I mean, well, ultimately Daniel's soul certainly is responsibility to God, but who's he working for? The king. King, a good believing Christian, and you know, cor- not no corruption, and no, not at all, right? Go ahead. What, what, what I find fascinating too is that they didn't even bother fabricating right. a lie against him because they knew it wouldn't be believed. Right. Because reputation would have immediately rejected any sort of falsehood that they would have brought. Yeah, they don't even try. They don't even bother. They right. Know it would have been rejected. Right. And and you know, this is the the faithfulness of a believing person underneath a false believing ruler amongst a false believing society. And in the government. And this guy is pristine, does his job better than anybody else, uses his full diligence to do it perfectly. I mean, this this is what is an example to us today. It doesn't matter who you're working for. It doesn't matter who your ruler is or all the people around you. That's not what influenced Daniel. He did his job perfectly. Go ahead. Nebuchadnezzar was driven mad for seven periods of time. We only got seven years. Right. But the kingdoms that he had controlled would have known that. Sure. He made a proclamation about it. Absolutely. Anybody else who was ambitious and would have wanted to take over the kingdom might have said, hey, here's my chance. Right. I'll become the king. But he didn't. So any subsequent king, Belshazzar and Cyrus, I mean, whoever, Darius, they would have known that also. Yeah. They could count on Daniel not to usurp them, but to support them because he did for a mad king for seven seasons. Yeah. And, and you know, and. <laughs> Daniel had the advantage of knowing that God was going to reappoint Nebuchadnezzar. But nevertheless, nevertheless, he didn't try and take anything to himself. They didn't know until afterwards, right? They knew it afterwards, but Daniel knew it beforehand. So, um, so it's just remarkable that this guy, after all these years, after having been put on the shelf by Belshazzar, now reestablished as a ruler, and they can't find a single thing. And if they could have, they would have. Because you've got everybody, except for a few faithful ones, looking to find a fault. And there are none. There's no deficiency whatsoever in Daniel's ruling. It's astounding. Okay, so we we go on, and, and the conspirators are not satisfied with that, right? This is clearly a conspiracy against Daniel. But that's not good enough for them. He says, Then these men said, We will find we will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel. That's a pretty good statement by your enemies, right? There is nothing that we'll find to accuse Daniel of. And this is the guys that hate him. So that's pretty pretty astounding. And so they begin to scheme and they say unless it's in the law of his God. So what does that tell you about Daniel? Not only is he a fabulous ruler, 
clean reputation, excellent kingdom underneath him, nothing of any corruption or whatever, but what else is known about him? Yeah, his testimony is that he's faithful to his God. And that none of these people, none of them, believe in his God. Just Daniel. All these other guys believe in bunches of gods. You know, the, the, um, the Medo-Persians were no better than the Babylonians when it came to being polytheistic. I mean, they had all their own gods too. As a matter of fact, when they came into Babylon, they worshipped the god of Marduk, just like the Babylonians did. He was, Marduk was still the god that ruled over that area. So then no different. They just accepted it because the temple was there and the guys who ran the temple were influential and strong. And so the whole, everybody believed in Marduk except for Daniel. And so, and these people know that. It's well known, not only that he's going to be promoted over the other commissioners, but now that his perfect ruling kingdom underneath him and that he is faithful to some God that he believes in. So his reputation is well known. So these guys begin to scheme against Daniel to find some way to use the God of Daniel to accuse him. Now, it's not written here, right? But what must have taken place in order for these guys to to come up with this plot? I mean... Or, or some aspect of his religion illegal. So what did they have to know? They would have had to, to know how he worshipped his God. And what he would not sacrifice. Right. And, and, right. And, and so, you know, they, were, they had to spy on Daniel. They had to get together and collude and come up with, well, what about this could we make illegal? Go ahead. Right. That's what. So they thought, right? Yeah. So they knew that Daniel historically had this relationship with a God that he would not deny. Right. Go ahead. I think it's interesting that the scripture points out things like that the windows were open. Yeah. On the rooftop. In other words, Daniel didn't do it in secrecy. Right. So they didn't have to spy necessarily. They could have just put a Consistency. Yeah, or climb a tree or something, right? It wasn't right. as though he hid somewhere to do what he did. Right. He, and I think that's something, too, that's amazing, is that it wasn't as though, I mean, I'm sure Daniel knew that, that, that he was going against the grain and the culture. Oh, there's no doubt. It, matter of fact, it explicitly states that. But he didn't close it up. Right. And it's interesting that Scripture points some of those facts out. Well, and even Daniel, you remember his testimony before Nebuchadnezzar um, all the time was there is a God in heaven who rules. And there's nothing special in me, but he's very special. Daniel openly said that many, many times through the book so far. Go ahead. Is it safe to infer at this point in history that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dead? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, we don't know. Maybe one of the satraps, they would have been one of the commissioners or, or something because they were so loyal. Yeah. Were... Well, and they may be a satrap. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. You know, after uh, they come out of the fiery furnace and they're distinguished, 
and, and promoted by Nebuchadnezzar, we never see him again. So, um, don't know exactly what happens to him. Go ahead. Can we conclude that there was a tolerance for people, or, you know, obviously conquered people with different beliefs who were allowed to... Well, you remember... Well, you remember what they did to all the youth who went to school, right? They brainwashed them. They taught them the Babylonian language. They gave them new names. They taught them the, the literature. You know, they, they basically brainwashed them for three years. And as far as we know, everybody got sucked in by that except for the four. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Well remember well remember that the Jerusalem society in general was corrupt even before they got captured. That's why they got captured. Is because they were, themselves didn't believe in God. So I think there are very, very few people who actually believe in Jehovah God of the Jews at this point. Small minority. And you see that when they get the opportunity to move back. There's not many of them who actually go back. Now, there are some. God always preserves a remnant. Always, in the Jewish nation, preserved a remnant of true believing people. But they're, they're certainly the minority. It, what bugs me is it seems that the king would have known and would have had Daniel in mind, perhaps, when these guys come and want him to make this recommendation of law. Uh, well, we'll talk about that. Why is it that the King Darius signed this. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a verse or two. Go ahead, Dave. This would suggest to me that, that Daniel, every moment of every day, with any decision or anything he had to do, uh, make, went to God first and asked for direction. Yeah, yeah. To me, a very, I can't fathom doing that on, on everything. Three times a day, Daniel went and thanked God. That's what this is all about, right? Three times a day was his custom to go and thank God. So thank you, God, that I can serve underneath Darius the king, right? And I've got all these unbelieving people around me. Nobody agrees that you're the one true God, and I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that wouldn't have been his prayer. His prayer would have been thank you for the blessings, thank you for the... The, the mind that you've given me. Thank you that your word still holds true. Thank you for Jerusalem, uh, you know, because his windows were open toward Jerusalem. Thank you for my heritage. Thank you for the, the remnant of people that you are preserving. It would have been that kind of stuff. But it saturated his mind always in all the decisions he made. That's why they're so good. Because this guy was so faithful. And God was faithful in return. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And yet they recognize that Daniel has one God. Yeah. And yet some be frustrated that no end. Yeah, and you know, only... This shows you that a person only comes to believe by the grace of God. Because otherwise, Daniel is always one. Always. His whole life. He's been better than anybody else. His, he's, um, he's been able to interpret dreams and handwritings. His three friends got thrown into a fiery furnace and didn't get burned up. I mean, surely this would convince you to believe in the God of Daniel, right? And it just shows you that people only believe by the grace of God. 
that you can't you can't decide that you're going to believe in in God just all on your own and then you're a true believer. That doesn't happen. It comes only by the grace of God. Go ahead, Dan. Quick question. I don't think I'll be on it. It says, then this Daniel distinguished himself. Yeah. Who's this passage? This is Daniel writing this. And it has been the whole time. Yeah, I mean, he speaks of himself as uh, someone who's not writing it. So he's telling a story. So, and it's been that way the whole way through, right? Other than Nebuchadnezzar's speech, um, where he went on for a whole chapter, everything else has been written by Daniel and spoken by Daniel, and he speaks of himself as being somebody else. That's very seldom, and he will um, a little bit here later, says I or me or use personal pronouns. He's always spoken of himself as somebody else. Yeah. He didn't say, I distinguished myself. No, no, no. He was distinguished by the king or you know, people around him. Wait, hey, people recognizing. So right. Yeah, it's just stating the facts. Yeah. And then he said, because an excellent spirit was in him. So he gives a reason why. Yeah. It's not about me. It's because God's excellent well, spirit. And when he did have the opportunity to promote himself, he chose to demote himself. I mean, saying there's not any, there's, I, I can understand this dream not because of anything special in me. That's what he said to Nebuchadnezzar. But because God decided to reveal it to me. Yeah, he clearly is humble. Um, so we'll keep moving here. All right, so um, they, they come up with this plot, and there, there's, some, there's some stuff in the white spaces here that we don't have, right? where they came up with this scheme. They had to talk about it. They had to understand how Daniel worshipped. And so then they go to King Darius, and, you know, in the verse 6, King Darius lived forever, the right way to approach a king, right? All the commissioners of the kingdom. What's wrong with that? Daniel's not there, right? He's one of the three presidents. And you would have thought that Darius was smart enough to recognize that, right? So why doesn't he? Look at what they appeal to. Look at what they appeal to in what they want to be done. Make a proclamation and an injunction that no one can request of any god or man You can't ask anything of anybody except for the king for 30 days. Yeah, why 30? That would have been enough time to catch Daniel. Well, you realize when Darius agrees to this, he is basically elevating himself, not just over everybody, which he is already elevated, but even over the gods. Yeah, lower G. Yeah, lower G. No one can even request of a god They've got to come to the king only. So they're appealing to his pride, his arrogance. For 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I think it was a temporary appeal to his pride because later on, yeah. when they bring, he realizes, oh no. Right. He can't back out of it Exactly. No, I agree, I agree with you. He, he, he respects Daniel. and all. But you, you would have to wonder, 
Why is it that when they say everybody agrees to this, all the commissioners and satraps, Daniel's not there. The other two are, but Daniel's not. But his antennas don't go up at that point. He's, he's, you know, this is an unbelieving king. He has respect and admiration for Daniel, but he doesn't believe in the God of Daniel. Not yet. Go ahead. This is similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did where he had yeah. the people pledge to the statue. Right. A couple of chapters earlier about it was a loyalty thing. Here's a king. Sure. Because we don't know the time frame. Right? No, we don't. So this could be fairly early on, and it's a loyalty thing. It's a, you know. Even though y'all vehemently disagreed with me on that, right? The, the reason they had the image and everybody to worship it was to show loyalty. No, no, we won't go there. <laughs> if we did agree with you on that. Yeah. Right. It seems similar to at least an idea of a loyalty pledge. Yeah, I mean, it's similar. It's similar. And, and this also exerts Darius' authority over his new kingdom. Yeah. I mean, it clearly says, I'm the guy. And if you do this, now, the penalty is what if you, do, if you violate this? Which is equivalent to? Death. Death. All right. This is capital punishment. If you do this, then we're going to lop your head off. We're going to tear you limb from limb, like Nebuchadnezzar would say. You know, you're, you're going to die. Go ahead. It's, it's long enough to catch Daniel, but it's short enough that it would have an uprising by the people where people sort of said, hey, you can't tell us what to do. Or you can't pray to Marduk. Right. right? right. So it's not so long that it would, it would cease worship of the other gods yeah this is the king you know he is a god so he can he can make this declaration for a time period geography um, Babylon is in the crossroads to the east is Persia modern right. day Iran Babylon to Iraq to the west Medes Turkey so what it says right here is according to the law of the Medes and the Persians right. so the common law and he had Medeans and Persians in his kingdom. So for 30 days, everybody had to follow this rule because it was right. based on both their kingdom's laws. Right, right. It's a, it's a, I mean, nobody could protest and say, hey, well, I'm from Turkey, I'm from Iran. Right, right. I mean, they're all, and they're in the kingdom, yeah. right? They're all conquered at this point. Go ahead. Yeah, oh yeah. Look, look at the, extent that these guys went to to catch Daniel in something that they made up. I mean, this is a lot of effort. Well, not only that, they know what the king will Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, you'll notice that what the scripture says is that there was no discussion they, they made this statement to the king. Why don't we sign this injunction? And by the way, I just happen to have the paper right here. Right? I mean, that's the way it reads, right? I mean, they brought the paper with them so that he could sign it. And then he immediately signs it. There's no discussion. There's no, well, let me think about this. Let me, let me step back from this. No. He just signs it. Go ahead, Gary. Jerry. Proverbs chapter 4. Yeah. Absolutely. Verse 
Yeah, I mean, they're trying to preserve themselves. I mean, they're going to be demoted and Daniel's going to be their boss. And they don't want that. That's the last thing they want. So, go ahead. It was interesting, too, to see that uh, Darius feels confined by this pre-existing law that would show that he is a man under some form of authority. Sure, sure, sure. if he truly was the ultimate king, um, he could easily have dismissed that law, but he was subject to it. Well, you know, and I agree with that. But you notice that when they come to accuse Daniel, when they come to accuse Daniel, the first thing they do is what? Praise the king and get the king to say what? Look at what he says. Look at what, what the king himself declares. Sorry. Right. Right. The king himself, before they accused Daniel, it may be after what I read, says, we can't change this. This cannot be revoked. Because once the king signs it, even the king can't change it. And so he himself, so to change it would be going against his own, his own statements. He can't do that. So he's trapped. He, there's no way out of this. And that's actually after what I read this morning. But they come and they, they spy on Daniel again or stand outside his windows and listen to him, right? Because they know that he's been praying. And they, they probably didn't do this the first day, right? They had waited for a little bit of time. And that's why when they come back in, they say, King, you remember the injunction you signed, right? Because it's been a little bit of time. Daniel's done this multiple times. And notice what, da- what it says about Daniel. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. So Daniel knew all about this, right? He knew that he was in violation of what the king had commanded. And he knew what else? That it was the death penalty if you violated it. He did. He knew the whole thing. He knew the whole thing, and yet what? And he remains faithful. He remains faithful. Now this today is what we would call civil disobedience. Right? There's a law that's been established, and you're in violation of the law, even though the Scripture says that you obey the rulers over you, even if they're evil. But this, I declare, is righteous in the eyes of God. Why? Right. The law as written would cause Daniel to sin against God. And so when the law is written such that you must sin against God, then you must disobey the law. And that's righteous in the eyes of God, although unrighteous in the eyes of men. So that that's the point at which you declare, I'm not going to be obedient to the evil rulers. But not until then. You notice before this, Daniel is pristine. He does everything requested of him. Go ahead. So I'm just going to say this in violation of the first commandment. Yeah. No other gods. Yeah, and they, they wouldn't have understood that, right? They just know Daniel prays to this God every day. So if we can get it declared that he can't do that, 
And if he does do it, he gets the death penalty, then, then we got him. So that's their scheme. Yeah. So it seems like they may have even studied the law of his God. They they had to go to links to be able to do this. Right. This is where, where, can we, where can we catch him in something important? Right. So let's make the king the God. Yeah, I mean they got him. And and it's a good trap. Go ahead, David. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Dan- no, no, no. Daniel remains faithful, and he doesn't care if everybody knows, even in in opposition. No, no, he, he, why is it that Daniel has open windows toward Jerusalem? Well, there is that place where Solomon prayed, and people are in captivity, they can face the temple, right? Yeah, but there's, there's, no, there's no law that says you have to face Jerusalem when you pray, unlike the law that says you have to face Mecca when you pray, right? Which it really does. There's no, there's no rule in the, in the uh, faith of the Jews that says you got to face Jerusalem. Why, why was he doing that? That's a good question. His home. It reminded him. It shows you that Daniel never lost sight of where he came from or of his God. Well, almost everybody else did. He did not. He still worshipped the one true God. He never wavered. Well, and I don't think we fully understand it, but these are Jews. The, the temple that Solomon built was a glorious place and has now been destroyed. Their homeland had been wrecked and their, their kinsmen killed. And I don't think we can grasp the connection that he would have had back to that. But it's clear that he does because his windows up on his, you know, are facing toward Jerusalem and that's where he faces when he prays. Go ahead, Lois. Yeah. Yeah, I I would say there is a degree of defiance. The, the defiance, though, is simply continuing what he's always done. It's not something new that he's going to do. It's what he's always done. It says that Daniel continued. Right, right. So, three times a day he's on his knees. I don't think he went home three times a day. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. He probably prayed where he was at, so he was observed by everybody. Sure. Yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, he is defying the law, but he's doing it simply doing what he's always done. He's not coming up with something new 
to defy this law. The law was written specifically against him and his practice. I think he's also making a stand for God. Yeah, he is. He clearly is. Go ahead. Chapter 9, verse 21, where he's talking about praying, and he says, While I was speaking in prayer, and then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. So yeah. Something he did every evening. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. This is his pattern. And that's why they're, they're, they bring this to Darius, because they know he's going to do this. He does it every day, three times a day. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Lay a trap, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. This is. Nothing, nothing changes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It all continues on. This, this chapter is very parallel to the chapter with the three being thrown into the fiery furnace. I mean, they're almost exactly the same. Same result, right? You're going to be killed because you you won't worship this other god. And so, same thing. This is very parallel. Sub-parallel with what got John the Baptist. Sure, sure. You know, here's wife's daughter knew that the king had spoken something. Right. She could manipulate that and get a layover. Right. And and the king... And then and the king regretted what he did. The king here regrets what he did. And we'll talk about that next week. Right? So we finished through verse 11. We'll pick up in 12 next week. Some of the things that are in 12, 13, 14, 15 we've talked about. But we'll, we'll go back over that next week. Any final comments? Something you want to say? Daniel is a remarkable fellow. He is righteous in every way when we look at his life. No. All they do is say you can't pray to your God. To another God. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean they're clever. Okay, this is a good trap. And they catch him. So I mean it's a good trap. They had to think about it for a while. There's there's stuff in the white spaces here that we don't have. Where they were plotting and scheming and coming up with the right thing to do. You have to wonder, are those safe traps, um, all these people, um, First, wouldn't you want to work for a good boss? Well, I mean, you think, but they not this religious to. fanatic. But they don't want to. Okay, and then they're, they're going to the king who really kind of holds their lives in his hands, and they're trying to trap the king into doing something they know the king doesn't want to do. Right. You kind of have to wonder, what were you thinking? Yeah. You know? Well, they win, though, right? For a while. For a while, for one night, they they get their way. Well, well yeah, they get eaten later. But. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say well, it's, I think it's sometimes lost. I don't say lost, but that how difficult it's easy when we read through this to think that the pressure Daniel was under to not lose faith is probably he knew there was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. He knew he had faith in the God, but it still I lose the fact of how difficult just to be 
righteous in the culture for what 65 years at yeah. that point. How difficult it was. I think we read through it sometimes and we just assume but the, if he was faithful that it was easy. Well, even remember what Shadrach. Probably too of some of, of you remember what the three said to Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, they said, our God will preserve us as we go into the fire. But even if he doesn't. So they didn't know they were going to come out alive. They stayed righteous. That's what you're talking about. Daniel here, he didn't know he was going to be thrown into the lion's den and then come out alive. He didn't know that. But he did. Sure. Yeah, and get eaten by a lion, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, he did not know when he went into the lion's den that he would come out alive. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and opposition is coming in greater ways down the road. You, you can see that, right? It's not like there needs to be handwriting on the wall. So, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Sure, sure. And this is the guy that never, I mean, the, the Darius looked at and said, this guy's better than anybody. Uh, they didn't bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's just... Yeah, what was there as a zealous youth is still there as a young man at 80. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I can help appreciate the uh, importance of spiritual discipline in times of freedom yeah. and how that strengthens one during times of persecution. Yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, so how big was this thing? <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture of it. So you'll have to go find the picture. There were 80 people in early worship, so one of those has a picture of the snake. <laughs> they did put it in a cup. It wasn't so big that it wouldn't fit in a cup. Yeah, it's a 55-gallon cup, but <laughs> thanks for your time. <laughs>